designers are going to pop in in a swirl like interview us about very painful things we've been through maybe create something cool but 99 percent of the time it never gets implemented so i started walking into spaces and they were like designer mm -mm. like we're not interested in talking to you you're not welcome in our community and so that was really honestly as part of my practice started to validate some fears i had about the process is when other folks were like yeah we don't like you here <laughs> we don't want designers so i am grateful i stand on the shoulders of all the people that were willing to tell us this is not okay we wanted to start a conversation and start a community where we would go on a mission to celebrate and to learn from designers leaders researchers and thinkers who create digital experiences that matter my name is David Whited. I'm the director of the CX practice at Highland, a digital experience agency in Chicago, Illinois. Here at Highland, we research, design, and build digital products and experiences for customer-centric companies and mission-driven organizations. I'm Mike Nowak, product strategist. And I'm Carissa Shelton, lead experience designer. Welcome to Experiences That Matter. Welcome everyone to this episode of Experiences That Matter. We're grateful this week to be joined by Tanya Nicey. Tanya is the founder and CEO of Baitna Design, an equity design firm that supports leaders in the social sector, helps them actually deliver on their commitments to equity. Uh, she's one of the founding creators of a whole new form of design called liberatory design. We're gonna be hearing a lot about that today. We're really looking forward to it. Uh, Tanya came to us and uh, we're really excited to talk to her because she is in many ways a pioneer and she's challenging some pretty deeply ingrained practices in order to more faithfully live out her own uh, personal commitments to equity. And today we're going to hear about her journey as a pioneer and about what it really takes to give yourself to a new way of doing things uh, in a world where there are deeply worn paths. So Tanya, uh, thanks so much for being with us today. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's really good to have you. So, uh, Tanya, I wanted to just start off by reading something that you've written about liberatory design, because I imagine like when people hear uh, liberatory design, I know Mike uh, and Carissa, like this is kind of a new, it's kind of a new thing to us. Had you, have either of you heard about liberatory design before we met Tanya? New, new to me. Yeah, I had yeah. not either. Yeah. So I, I wanted to just start by reading something that you've written and then just kind of hear your response to it because it strikes me as really important. So um, you said that we believe that racism and inequity have been designed and thus can be redesigned. Um, and in order to do that, we need a radically different approach to design. One that's rooted in sharing power, recognizing oppression, embracing complexity and centering those impacted by inequity. When I first read that uh, statement, I was really struck by the boldness of it. Uh, but then I also kind of like immediately started thinking about like my own ways of thinking about human centered design and about design thinking and how I see them as so democratic and so humanistic, right? And so oriented in, in listening and like all these practices that seem like really humane. And, and so, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm curious, like as we get started, like how is liberatory design, uh, different than traditional forms of design thinking and human-centered design? Mm. Oh, yes. That's always the first question I get. <laughs> um, I would say, and part of that quote, I want to honor the collective and, the, you know, the, the work that I do with other collaborators. The racism was designed. I've heard from Antoinette Carroll, from Christine Ortiz, Michelle Molitor, Caroline Hill, David Clifford. So in this collaborative, we have the first part of that phrase I have heard before from them. Wow. 
okay. it was deeply inspired by it. And then um, the other pieces I wrote around like what that means for, for my practice, for liberatory design moving forward. Um, the question, how's it different? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I would say my experience of design thinking or human-centered design in my education and in my practice teaching at the D school was sort of like an unspoken assumption that design is apolitical and that like we are doing, especially with social impact design, like it's for the good of people. And yes, I think the intentions are always there, but we were often not talking about any of the politics, right? Of like, how did this problem come to be in the first place? And often looking at people and saying, how do we change this behavior versus looking at these people are surviving in a broken system. What is the system producing these conditions? And how are we thinking about redesigning that in parallel? So for me, I think the biggest difference is a frame of mind around our role as a designer, the power that we have in a, in a process and naming the oppressive system that we live within. If we're even talking about redesigning or changing outcomes, we have to start there. Hmm. How do you think, how do you think like within sort of a liberatory design framework, like how does it change the role of the designer? Like what, what does it look like in practice? Ooh, a lot. <laughs> I would say, where do I even want to start there? I would say, okay, hold on. Can I grab a post-it? Sure. We practically live for post-its. <laughs> <laughs> I love, this is our first, this is our first episode where we actually pulled out a post-it. For, for everybody listening, uh, Tanya's gotten, she's gone and gotten a mobile whiteboard and she's now pulled it into the video and uh, it ha it's full of stickies. So we're going to, we're going to have to put those in the show notes, I think. <laughs> yeah. something. But now we're all like, we're all actually so happy because there's like colorful stickies in the frame. We, we know we're, we know we're with our people when <laughs> <laughs> I can't explain this to you without showing you something on a board. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so I'm thinking about, um, I'm working on a couple different pieces I'm writing right now, and thinking about the role of a designer in particular, um, I was brainstorming all the different forms, and this is some of the language I'm playing with. So design as ethical gatekeeper, designer as power broker, designer as activist, designer as conduit of reparations. These are just a couple. And I'm playing with what is this new role? And I think the most simple form of it is shifting who's making decisions and our lead in that. So there's no doubt, I never want to question the expertise of design and the rigor of it, right? And the more we practice, the stronger we get. But at the same time, is often what happens is we consult people in the beginning and the end, but then a lot of decisions are made behind closed doors and a lot of our subjectivity is not acknowledged. And so if we're thinking about truly trying to support outcomes for a certain group of people, whether we're part of that community or not, um, I think the fundamental shift is we can't, we can't be behind closed doors and assume that we're doing what's, what's best for folks. And that the power dynamics of interviewing and testing are enough for us to truly understand what's gonna happen. There's a whole other conversation around ownership, like what is their role in owning it and shaping it if we've done it behind closed doors and then like sort of reveal at the end, like we consulted you and we hope you like it. So I think the biggest shift is thinking about our role as a facilitator of process and bringing our expertise and our rigor and being part of the design team as a co-design team, but also part of our role is holding the space and facilitating the space. So for folks who haven't had the privilege like I had of a design education, a formal education, then they can walk into that space as human beings and through their, ex their expertise as lived experts can contribute in a meaningful way to the process. 
So that's the biggest shift in my mind is like we are now co-creators and facilitators and holders of space to invite that type of co-creation that isn't always present in the design space. I love that. Yeah. And with that sounds like advocating beyond just here's, here's my recommendation. Okay. Bye. But like holding on to that kind of advocacy and empowering, uh, seeking those good things. Um, and, and naming the, the, those implicit biases or whatever might be at play, um, kind of beckoning experienced designers to lean into that, like an advocacy role, it sounds like as well. Yeah. 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 And it's interesting. I would say one of the biggest things I've heard from communities of color, from communities, even abroad, was that like, here they come again, designers are going to pop in, in a swirl, like interview us about very painful things we've been through maybe create something cool, but 99% of the time it never gets implemented. So I started walking into spaces and they were like, designer, Mm-mm. like we're not interested in talking to you. You're not welcome in our community. And so that was really, honestly, as part of my practice started to validate some fears I had about the process is when other folks were like, yeah, we don't like you here. <laughs> we don't want designers. Um, wow. Yeah. So that was a shift for me as well. And I think a distinction is I'm talking about in my traditional setting, because of the financial stability I have, and I went to Stanford, so I have the academic privilege there. Like I'm in a lot of scenarios in which the work I'm supporting clients with, they're not of that community or they don't share a lot of those intersectional identities. There is also a scenario in a lot of cases already happening where um, whether they call themselves organizers or activists are doing design work on the ground in which the community they live in. Right, so that's kind of a whole different vibe. But the way I talk about it is if we are asking to support, if we're asking to be allies and doing design work and we're not of that community, what does that look like? So that's mostly the frame I speak from. But of course, design is happening from the ground up without us too. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me some of Peter Block's thinking. I don't know if you're familiar with Peter Block, but he talks about sort of the, uh, the frame of abundance, like a sort of an abundance mindset. And Peter really holds that like if you are going into a community all of the solutions for all of the problems that exist in that community can be found within the community itself mm-hmm. and he's just got this commitment to starting there right like that that external people coming in like into a, a new community you know often think you know I'm bringing in hope or I'm bringing in solutions or I'm you know I'm I'm here to really bring some expertise when really like what the what's needed in order to solve the problems in that community there it's already there right mm-hmm. um you just sort of have to start from that frame of abundance and recognizing what's there so oh uh, yeah that's really cool well yeah. how does this um i'm i'm curious like i'd love to hear more about like how how did this start to dawn on you like uh, as a designer like you've talked a little bit about it but i'd love to hear some more about it yeah I would say the beginnings were in my design education um and having some questions about language that was being used or framing. Um, I heard things like, you know, people don't know what they want. You have to tell them what they want. Or, you know, when we're doing interviews, like always look for the nuggets, for the golden nuggets, which to me implies that we're like mining people. There's just a lot of language and practices that in my education, I was like, ooh, that doesn't feel right at all. But then looking around in a lot of white spaces being like, no one else seems bothered. Like, do they know something I don't know? What's the, so there was a little bit of self-doubt of like, hmm. I would say also at that point, I wasn't as politicized as I am now. And when I say politicized, I mean like in my critical awareness of race theory, of oppression, systems of oppression. So I sort of didn't have like the rationale or the 
understanding to, yeah, I just felt like, oh, it's supposed to be a personal thing. Like maybe it's just me. And then that continued into my practice teaching at the D school. Um, but I think I reached a point where it felt like, no, this, this, I feel too strongly about this. Like something is really not working. Um, and then the level of response I got from communities that we were working in was very validating. It's unfortunate that it had to happen that way, right? That we had to go there and they had to be like, excuse me, not interested. <laughs> but that was a gift they gave me. And I carry that responsibility of carrying that forward into the design practice, what they, what they helped teach me with generosity, which is just like, that, that was validating for me. Like, wait a minute, I'm not the only one who feels this way. The people who were quote unquote trying to like support also feel this way. So then I just started looking for any dissenters, talking to any designers I could find. Like, do you have problems with this? Have you ever thought about this? Just like spreading out the words. Um, and I hit a lot of walls, but there were a couple people who were like, you know, kind of behind the scenes, like, yeah, I felt that way for a long time. And so then I just went that direction. It was like, oh, awesome. I can have the conversations there. Let me um, invest in those relationships. I've been struck by how, like you said, you know, initially you didn't find a lot of like validating voices within the design community, right? Um, but you were having all these struggles and just, you know, wondering like, am I crazy? You know, I think we've all, yeah. we've all kind of felt that, right? Like, why am I seeing this thing that nobody else is seeing? So um, I'm curious, like how you, like, where, what did you draw on for validation before you got sort of the validation from those other communities or those sources? Like, cause it's kind of hard to challenge the status quo. What, what sort of drove you in that moment? I mean, I think to be honest, it was a lot of thinking and journaling and processing and wondering, but I was just sitting with the discomfort and thinking on a smaller scale, like what is it about my work role that is not allowing for this um, experimentation or is it something tied to an organization I'm part of? I think I was sort of just bouncing ideas off on a very early phase and unclear. And then the validation is what shifted for me. So before then, I think I really needed that to get a sense that there is something worth exploring there. Because essentially I was saying like, okay, I'm going to push back on forces of design education, which are very elite. And these people have been practicing design for 20, 30 years. Like, am I really going to say that I question some of the fundamentals? In particular, I feel an immense amount of responsibility to the communities we were a part of, that we were guests in. And to hear from them that we were bad guests was um, heartbreaking, important. And that's what really, I think in my life, that's a pattern. That's what turns me into an activist. It's like, okay, I can process. I'm a strong person. I can work within a system that's a little bit jacked up. But when other people that were supposedly helping are negatively impacted, like, that's not okay. I'm going to like, if there's a mass of us, this is not, if any one person is harmed, it's not okay. But you, you know what I'm saying? Like, I felt like I could, you know, within myself, take care of myself and do what I need to do. I felt I had agency. But if we're, it's happening to communities we're working with, that's not okay. I think that's what, like, snapped it for me. Is like, mm -mm, that turned me into an activist. Like, there's not a way in which this is okay. Yeah. Tanya, I'm curious if you could, if you could, I don't know if you can or not, um, if you could tell us a little bit of a story about like one of those community interactions. I'm having a hard time kind of getting my head around it just because like yeah. a lot of our context is like testing apps with voluntary panels. Okay. And stuff. You know what I mean? Like I've got this, I've got this picture in my mind of all these people who are part of like a voluntary user panel who mm -hmm. want to be there and talk to designers, right? So yeah. how can we become more aware that we're operating in ways that may not be welcome? I would say there's a couple things happening. One, I was noticing there was a real 
lack of students of color. I use the term BIPOC, so Black, Indigenous, people of color. There were not a lot of BIPOC students taking our classes, and the D school is like opt in. Um, and so I had some initial questions around like, huh, there's a hypothesis that maybe this is not a space that feels welcoming to them or it doesn't, you know, like, what is that about? So I started interviewing some folks who identify as leaders in those spaces on campus um, and got some really great feedback there around like how the space feels to them. But also the main feedback I got is like the things I care about aren't represented here. So like I'm on the front lines of XYZ issue, but none of your like quote unquote social impact classes are about that. So I'm just gonna like, no offense, I'm gonna spend time where I, you know, on the things I care about and you don't have those things. And so there was some initial conversation around like, why, why are the students not here? They don't owe us their trust, but like, let's go explore with humility um, if they're open to talking to us about why that's not happening. That was one level. I think also we were hearing a lot of stories. Stanford has a um, complex relationship with East Palo Alto, which is, you know, Stanford, there's Stanford and then Palo Alto. Um, East Palo Alto, is where a lot of the BIPOC folks live that do a lot of work that serves Stanford. And it is uh, an under-resourced area. And Stanford has a long relationship of going in. I'll just say in my you know, opinion, I do love my Stanford, but they, they've gone in with a very savior mentality and have for years and years and years to either do research, which folks see no results from, to do design work. So also in our classes, I was hearing stories from students of um, really difficult interactions um, whether that was, you know, they talked to someone in an interview who felt coerced because she was thought she was going to, she was going to lose access to her son's pre-educational assets she was getting from Stanford if she didn't do the interview. Some people were really confused about what was even happening. They talked to someone who was housing insecure about organ donations, and he felt so unsafe. He called the police. He thought maybe they were they were like going to want to do something related to him with organ donation. There were stories trickling up to me from other teachers, from students that were breaking my heart. And there was someone, Alyssa at the D school who was doing research around the ethics of empathy and sort of sourcing some of these stories, talking to design folks about how they think about ethics. And that also gave me some permission internally to pursue that topic as well, but it, it was gonna come out differently for me. But she was sourcing some of those stories, I was hearing them from other people, and that was uh, definitely raising an alarm for me. And then I know I also was part of a program that was doing design work abroad, sort of representing the D school. And pretty early on, it became apparent to me that uh, I'll just say, like, I think it was framed that we were offering a gift, that we were opening doors, that we were giving access to design material. And the intent was there around, like, if folks can't attend Stanford or fly to California, how could we offer some of the learning and support, like, you know, in other nodes of the world. So that was exciting. But what happens often in American-based international work is th that comes with a bit of ego of like, we're here, come see our things. Like, aren't you excited? We're offering this for free. And then a lot of folks in those different countries were kind of like, either like, eh, like not that many people signed up or they came and they were like, we don't trust you. Like, we're here to see if we can trust you. But, mm. you know, kind of like, mm, show us, show us what you can do which is 100% fair because <laughs> there's a whole legacy of imperialism and colonialism, right? Like in one place, they were even like, nobody invited you. Why did you come here? Yeah. I mean, even the, the most complex was Cape Town because I have so much deep respect for the legacy of activism there. 
and they speak very plainly in a way that in America, a lot of folks still struggle to talk about race and power and histories of oppression. Um, and there were amazing designers doing work there that were like, mm -mm -mm, no, no, no. Like we have shifted design to work in this context and in this way. And so like, what are you doing here? And so mm. that, it's honestly even embarrassing to say, right? That we went there, I'll speak for myself, that I went there, that that was part of the conversation. But I think as the only person of color on the team, I, when they would share that with me, that was an immense gift. And I was like, this is my responsibility. Now I hold this, you've given me this gift, like literally for my life, I will continue to learn from this gift you've given me. And when we hit, when we landed in Cape Town, that's what I pivoted all my time to was setting up interviews with folks that anyone that would talk to me about design, how they're shifting it to learn from them and honor their practice and work, um, to learn about how we could mitigate the harm of arriving and what we were doing there. <sighs> so yeah, those were a couple key moments where I was just saying intentions don't align with impact. And that's the whole thing in the justice space, right? Is that like impact is what matters and regardless of your intentions. And so if you were given that, making that impact I wasn't comfortable with, immediate transition is harm reduction, um, seeking repair if they're open to it, thinking about healing conversations. So that's where I pivoted was like, Ooh, nope, this was a mistake. What are we like? We're, we're here. Um, what can we do to honor that, to own that, et cetera. And that's, yeah, something I've carried into my practice. So I am grateful. I stand on the shoulders of all the people that were willing to tell us this is not okay. Tanya, I like, I mean, in addition to being like the only person of color on the team, what else sort of in your life do you think sensitized you to those dynamics that you were experiencing? Oh, David, so glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so my parents are uh, immigrants from Lebanon. First, we were in Texas and then um, Arkansas. So I grew up mostly in Little Rock. And that experience as the children of immigrants was fascinating and a mix of many different things. So in one space, I think... I learned like how to translate, how to process multiple worldviews, how to identify that like there isn't a truth, but only multiple ways of being and thinking. That was part of it, right? Because I was in white spaces, white school, white soccer, white horseback, like all the white spaces. And then I was also at home with my family. We were very close and very important to us to maintain cultural Lebanese cultural values and traditions. And so bouncing in between them as a young person, you just learn to translate and to understand and to bounce. So I think part of it was that is like I could learn how to function in white spaces to achieve the, the power and access that I wanted. But I also held that there were other truths that I believed in. And I think that in my development as a person, this sort of design crisis, I would describe it was was sort of the peak of that is like, okay, I'm done straddling the spaces. I wanna make some choices about how I operate and how I live. And then that was sort of like the like crystallization of that. And it was in parallel to my design practice and shifting was also a, a personal practice and shifting. Um, but yeah, and I think experiencing racism in the South, you know, my parents had strong accents. We were there after 9-11, people don't know, a lot of people don't know what Lebanon is. But if they understand it's in the Middle East, in Arkansas, then that was obviously negative reaction. And my brother's, my younger brother in particular, was a lot darker skinned than me. And so the levels of obvious racism, I could go on and on and on of how he was treated by school leadership, by, you know, outside curricular activities. So, and my parents as well, obviously, with their, with their accents. So it, it was also carrying that legacy and understanding 
Like that level of lived experience shifts how you practice as a designer. And if you look on the forefront mm -hmm. of who's, who's leading this equity design and design justice work, it's majority BIPOC folks um, and mm -hmm. folks of different intersectional identities. So I think it sort of speaks to like, it just made sense. Given everything I've been through when that was crystallizing and I was processing that, like, yeah, of course I'm gonna listen to the people, the BIPOC people telling us this is not okay. Like, cause I was that person. So, yeah. 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 100%. Yeah. Well, as we've, as we've talked about, like we grew up actually about 45 minutes from each other. So it's not difficult for me to imagine. <laughs> That's wild. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not difficult for me to imagine what it was like to grow up uh, that way. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting while you were talking and thinking about liberatory design and sort of, you know, you wrestling with all this and sort of facing it and then, I was reminded of a conversation I had with this very, this older wise um, person uh, that was a mentor of mine. And we were talking about like what it means for it to dawn on you that you're complicit in so many of the, the like sort of the damaging ways of the world, right? Like when you start to become aware of how complicit you are. And I remember going to, to him and saying, you know, you know, when you start, when you realize this and you realize how complicit you are and how much you actually participate in it, right? Like, what do you do? Because you can feel just completely overwhelmed. Like when you start to realize the depth of it and the gravity of it. And he looked at me and he said, he said, David, um, after all of my years of living, I think the best thing to do when you realize that you are complicit in the damaging ways of the world is to create something beautiful in response. Mm. Mm. And I were like, I will just never forget that conversation. And like, when I hear you tell, when I hear you talk about liberatory design, like I just am filled with gratitude and appreciation because you've like, you've sort of taken this, you know, this, this pain and, and you, you're really creating something beautiful uh, with it in response. Mm. And so I, I'd like to kind of take things practical. Um, sure. because I'd love, like, we've got designers that listen to this, you know, leaders that listen to this, a lot of us work in corporate spaces, you know, many of us, I mean, folks that listen to this podcast are listening to it because they care, they, they want to contribute to human flourishing, right? So, yes. so they're, so it's not just folks that are doing corporate world, but even in corporate spaces, we want to contribute to human flourishing. Yeah. Right? So for folks that are just doing, you know, everyday sort of design, <laughs> you know, um, what, what are the steps they can take to start to um, think in a more liberatory framework or like, you know, uh, work in a more liberatory sort of approach? Hmm. Yes. We created, um, so liberatory design I co-created with four other people, David Clifford, Susie Wise, Victor Carey, Tom Malarkey. And we wrote these, what we call them the liberatory design mindsets, which are around like a way of being and how you practice. And so some of them like practice self-awareness, radical collaboration, recognize oppression. A lot of those, we use the mindsets to, instead of saying like, here's a list of how to do design better, or like root yourself in the mindsets and in your politics and your values. And then as a designer, you can brainstorm or you know, practice like, what are the different ways I'm gonna bring that to life in this project? So there are tangible things that I've learned, like rethinking our relationship in interviewing, um, working with, you know, given constraints, I'm on the outside. I made that choice intentionally, <laughs> start my own company, do my, you know, <laughs> have the full freedom that I want, but that's not an experience everyone has. And I don't think the solution is for everyone to leave the system. Uh -huh. I think we need both. So like, what is that version to you? And, you know, for some folks that means like, 
advocating for involving folks that we're talking to in more of the process, whether that's just like, you know, instead of just interviewing and testing, like you're saying, co-creation, maybe they can also be there for brainstorming. Or if that doesn't work, maybe we brainstorm and we, you know, flesh out like three or four ideas, but we let them choose. Like there's a different ways to think about how am I going to shift my practice even a little bit or even small things like how are we honoring people's time? Are we compensating people for contributing their lived expertise? Because they are consultants, right? Like we literally can't do a project without them. Designers would not be successful if the people we talk to would not talk to us. So like, are we honoring in that way? And money's not the only way to honor, but that's something that I'm trying to do. It, how are we thinking about if we service something really painful in an interview, are we offering space or resources for them to process that afterwards, right? Like, especially doing, well, the work I do, because, because we're doing equity work and race work, like a lot of painful stuff comes up. And then often you close a diner, you're like, thank you so much, bye. And then you sort of just leave them with that. <laughs> like you, re, you resurfaced it. So there's a lot of more tangible things we think of, but my invitation is to take the mindsets and think about how you would practice differently and how you would shift your own role. We also have in the equity design collaborative, we came up with these definitions to talk about the role of the designer. So there's equity designer, which means like you currently have lived experience of the problem. There's an equity design ally, which means that you're very supportive, you're very involved. Maybe you previously experienced it, maybe not, but you're showing up as an ally. And then there's an equity design facilitator, which I view my role, which is back to what you were saying, David, one of my mentors says people can solve their own problems under the right conditions. It's like my role is about shaping conditions and using the power and access that I have to shape those conditions. So that's another question is like, yeah, what is your role? How do you relate to the people you're working with on projects? And how can you slowly start to tangibly change things around how you relate to them? The other question we're talking about tech is like, I'm so excited by movements like tech won't build it um, and internal activism that's starting to happen at tech companies. It's happened recently at Facebook. There's this book ruined by design by Mike Montero and another amazing book called design justice by Sasha Costanza Kachuk. I hope I'm pronouncing their name right. And they talk about like, what is it? What is your moral, political, ethical compass as a designer? And what does that mean for your role? And Mike's book in particular, Ruined Design, he talks about designers, I'm not sure if this is exactly his language, but what I took away from that is the, the ethical gatekeeper of like, you are the closest to the people you're impacted at the organization. And so it's your job to hold rank. Like just, I don't like military analogies. It's your job to um, be the advocate, be the activist internally, because the goals of a lot of tech companies are profit and scale. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that results in harm of the people yeah. we're supposedly designed for. So are there also ways in which I should also say, like, be safe, take care of yourself. <laughs> but like, if there are ways for you to push internally as an activist to shift company culture, because it's happening at Google, at Facebook, I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really helpful. So, well, Tanya, where would, if, if a designer was wanting to like find some of those resources, like I, I love the idea of starting with mindsets, right? Like, I think that's really, really helpful because then all the learning and the understanding is contextualized, right? It's, it's because yes. it starts with sort of the, you know, the way that the designers seeing the world, like where can they access those materials? Mm. The PDF is on my website. It's baitnadesign.com and baitna is spelled B-E-Y-T-N-A design.com. Yeah. Or you can follow us the same handle at baitna design on Instagram where we announce everything new that's happening. So that's probably the best way to get all the announcements. It's also on the D school website and national equity project was one of our co-creators also on their website. And we're making version two. That's going to be released like fingers crossed next month, but let me just say this fall. And then I'm working on a number of medium pieces. I mean, 
<laughs> I have some writing to do, my friends. Um, uh, those are be- the post-its for those yeah. listening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The post-its I have not written yeah. yet. Um, we'll end up on our Medium page, too. That's great. All right. Well, Tanya, thanks so much for being with us today. This has been a great conversation, and I feel like I've been challenged and stretched. And uh, yeah. yeah, I'm looking forward to thinking more about these uh, how we can adopt our adapt our practices to uh, reflect these new things. Mike and Krista, did you have anything you wanted to say um, here at the end? I just want to say thank you so much. I think it's, I love that you're thinking through these things. I love that you're helping to shape this kind of thoughtfulness that I think is really important and really necessary. And, you know, anything can be designed and redesigned. And so how do we be mindful of the good changes that can come from that? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, thanks. I, I'm a big fan. Anytime people are out there doing mission oriented work outside of just what's the bottom line, but asking critical questions about how do we, how do we make the world a more humane yeah. place? Yeah. Thanks y'all. Thanks for having yeah. me. This was fun. Thanks everyone for joining us today on this episode of experiences that matter. We'll see you next time. Today's episode was hosted by me, David Whited, Mike Nowak, and Carissa Shelton. Editing by Daniel Santrella. Original music by Daniel Santrella and Tyler Edders. Cover art by Teresa Berg and Bridget Calling. Katie Sue Fisher does our scheduling administration. And Andreana Pacella is our beloved producer. For more information on Highland, visit our website at highlandsolutions.com or connect with us on Twitter at, at Highland Chicago.